Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, hey, everyone. You know what time it is from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, politics reporter at KQED. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Scott Schaefer. He's doing some foreign corresponding for us. <laughs> we'll interview him about what's happening abroad when he gets back. But today on The Breakdown, we're going to be joined by a congressman who's probably tweeting, maybe Snapchatting, even as I speak. That's right. East Bay Congressman Eric Swalwell is going to join us. Took on an entrenched incumbent six years ago and won kind of before that was a thing. Before right, was- before it was cool to do that. Um, Well, first, we're going to talk about a little bit of news close to home. Got to start with the wildfires that are really ravaging California. It has been a really tough week up in Mendocino, Shasta County, down south in some areas. Um, But politically, there's been also some interesting conversations going on. It seems like Republicans in Sacramento are being sort of vindicated a little bit. That's right. I mean, we get the sense with these fires, the fires that we had last year, this is going to be tremendously expensive long term to fight this. Um, And I think you're starting to hear Republicans and some Democrats call for a more kind of sustainable funding source as we look to the future when, you know, Jerry Brown may be out of office, we may be hit with a <laughs> Is recession. he leaving office? Yeah. And, and looking at, because, you know, the long-term management, when it, whether it's thinning forests or having kind of controlled burns, where is that money going to come from long-term? And as you alluded to, a couple Republicans this week in the state legislature said, well, maybe we should look at cap-and-trade funds. If this really is about, you know, climate change, which has made these fires more extreme long-term, maybe that's the source that it should be. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, this is something we've heard a lot of Republicans, particularly from more rural areas, but also someone like Senator John Morlock from Orange County, which sort of has some of that interface with the you know urban and, and wild uh, areas that, that really get hit hardest by these things. Talk about like we can't, you know, we haven't done a good job of managing our forests. We, and, and he's made this point that I think is really interesting, which is that these wildfires create a lot of greenhouse gases. And if, you know, so I think that there is an argument to be made um, and, and I'm sure we'll see it happen around cap and trade. Um, and then also, you know, coming up next week, we're going to see more hearings in Sacramento looking at this issue of utilities and whether or not PG&E should be sort of taken off the hook for some of uh, the fires that they have historically caused. So it's not going away. Not going away. And other thing we looked at this week, uh, pre- former President Barack Obama dropped a number of endorsements nationwide leading up to the midterms. Including a lot of California races, he he endorsed uh, Gavin Newsom in the governor's race, Eleni Kunalakis in the lieutenant governor's race, seven different congressional candidates, and then Buffy Wicks, a former aide who is running for state assembly in the 15th district. 
I, I would say this is a lot more controversial than the summer reading list that he put out. <laughs> Probably, although I'm sure somebody hates that too. Yeah, I mean, the Buffy Wicks race, I mean, she is sort of being painted in that race as the more establishment candidate, as the more business-friendly candidate. Of course, that's sort of an only-in-the-Bay-area type characterization because I'm sure if she went anywhere else, she would be, you know, a liberal a liberal Obama Democrat. But that one's interesting. Also interesting who's not on this list. That's uh, the thing. I mean, anytime you put out these batch endorsements, it's almost like the first thing you look for is who didn't get the rose, right? right? Like, And in this case, Gil Cisneros, a House candidate in Fullerton, was not included in the list. So immediately the speculation starts. Was it because he's taken kind of a strong stand against Nancy Pelosi? Uh, you know, maybe it's because he was a former Republican who voted for John McCain in 2008. Anyway, these things have swirled around. The Obama folks have said this is just the first round of endorsements. There right. will be another one. There's a chance he gets the rose. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Later this summer. We'll all be lining up in our suits and the best dresses. Um, but that was not the only sort of uh, East Coast news in California this week. We had a fundraiser in San Francisco and in L.A. Um, where Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez was sort of the headliner. And this is progressive Democrats. Um, she, of course, won the primary in Brooklyn against a very powerful Democrat in the uh, Congress. And so, I mean, what, what do you make of this? Like, I mean, I think it's clearly good for sort of the money, right? They're, they're, they're fundraising here. I mean, that's why she's coming here. But I think it's interesting because this gets to some of the schisms that we're seeing within in these Democratic races. That's right. And I think the way that these fundraisers were set up, this wasn't in a living room or, you know, a dinner party somewhere. No these were held. Mansions. Yeah, exactly. These were, you know, there was a theater in the mission and a theater in L.A. There were huge crowds that came out to see her. Um, and I think Ocasio-Cortez did a really good job. I think she realizes her own star power at this point. But also to not step on any toes. She came out here, you know, she has the backing of, of Democratic socialists from, you know, California progressives. But she didn't come out and say, I'm, you know, endorsing Proposition 10 to expand rent control or I'm endorsing Kevin DeLeon in the run for Senate. She didn't I really talk about any of that. That's issues. right. You know, she has her she has her speech and she has, you know, uh, the things that she knows how to do to get people excited without necessarily jumping in on any local issues. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that it, it it's fascinating to see kind of who comes out to this in San Francisco. We saw Supervisor Jane Kim, who, of course, just lost a, a tough race for mayor in San Francisco, introducing her. Um, and, you know, it, it, it certainly gives sort of some star power and an opening, I think, to some of these more progressive candidates in San Francisco or elsewhere to kind of hitch their wagon to her star. And credit to AOC. I think she took a photo with every single person. Yeah. That, I, the, the, the elected official photo list coming out of that fundraiser, I think everyone got a little bit of, you know, time to press the flesh, take some photos. So, And you can tell like where people are positioning themselves because somebody like Kevin DeLeon, who's taking on U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, you know, wants to be front and center at that. He's trying to prove his progressive credentials. And so, you know, you got to be there. You got to show up. Um, all right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And after we return, we will be joined by Congressman Eric Swalwell. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Guy Marzrati here with Marisa Lagos and our guest this week, East Bay Congressman Eric Swalwell. Welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks for having me on it. Happy to have you here. So we hear that you are just back from a trip from Iowa, where you're from. I was born there. Yeah, I was born in uh, northwest Iowa. My dad was a cop. My mom raised us boys, made wedding cakes in our kitchen, dollhouses in the garage, and ran a fairly large unlicensed daycare facility. <laughs> we, we won't tell anyone. Yeah, that statute of limitations yeah. have run, but <laughs> we uh, moved to Oregon and then up and down California and settled in Dublin. So you were not in Iowa just for a trip down memory lane, I assume. This has something to do with politics, right? You know, I, I took a trip down like Main Street and did uh, a couple parades, but we're trying to win the House. And I've seen so many candidates across the country stepping up and running and one candidate is running in the area where I grew up against Steve King, mm-hmm. a Republican. I think we all know his tweets, his, uh, I think, ugly comments about immigrants. And we've got a 38-year-old candidate who grew up in the district and moved away because he saw jobs going away and moved back home, uh, wanting to make sure that other people like him could have opportunities. So I'm helping him, and I'll be back there uh, next week on the eastern side of the state, helping a 29-year-old woman uh, who, same age as AOC, uh, she's running in eastern Iowa, first in her family to go to college, two-term legislator. So there's just bursts of new energy ideas and confidence across the country. Connor Lamb, I think, was kind of the tip of the spear of uh, what's to come this November. So, I mean, Steve King, though, th- that sounds like a Steve tough— Steve King, though. Hashtag <laughs> yeah. Steve King, though. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a tough race to win. I mean, is it, do you think—are those really seats Dems could flip? Yeah. More Democrats voted in this, the primary in June uh, than Steve King got votes. So is that like, it, that's I mean, a good sign. it seems to me that's really what Democrats are looking at is they, they need excitement. They need people to come out yeah. because we know, you know, in, in a lot of the districts in California, the DCCC is targeting mm-hmm. that more people voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, when you're out there, like, what are you talking about? And specifically to young voters, because I know that that's yeah. something that you've really tried to, to sort of work on as a member of the House. It's safety in the classroom with young people. You talk to any young person anywhere in America, it's the right to learn without fear, the right to go home, the right to live. Like that is their issue. They're not a single issue generation, but if you can't solve that one, they're they're not interested in engaging on anything else because they think right now in their lives, that's the most important thing. And I know you've talked openly about the student loans that you have. That's another issue. You know, the Trump administration pushing to eliminate uh, the, the de- debt forgiveness program for people getting into public service. I mean, we kind of talked about this before the show. The idea that this has become a kind of partisan issue, uh, it seems like it's something new because that's a program that was started under the Bush administration. That's right. 2007, it was a uh, Nancy Pelosi, George Bush deal that said, if you go into public, I know. There, they, right. I'm, I'm sorry, a lot I'm of, laughing a little bit. Those were the like, days, right? President Bush, yeah. uh, we would all give anything <laughs> for that. But 
it said if you go into public service, teacher, firefighter, nonprofit, you work for 10 years, any federal uh, student loan debt you have is forgiven. And the Trump administration is zeroing that out. Now, I was the first in my family to go to college. I did it because my mom and dad wanted me to do better than them. And I've seen so many of my friends who did the same thing. And they've come out with just... I mean, you've talked pretty openly about how much debt you have. Still have just under $100,000. And it puts people in financial quicksand. And the biggest challenge on this issue, though, and I I saw a letter to the editor uh, today in the East Bay Times because they did a profile on me and Andrew Jans, who's running in the Mm -hmm. Central Valley, about our student loan debt. And someone said, you know, why are you complaining? This shows that you're irresponsible and we shouldn't even have you in office anyway. And I've heard that argument. But what people are suggesting is from a different era because it used to be the case in California that you could go to college, work through school, come out with a little bit of debt, and then you're debt-free in a couple of years. But because we've disinvested in education, because the universities have just jacked up the cost, it's apples and oranges. So the cost of college since 1980, the year I was born, to today has gone up 306%. So it's not something, irresponsibility. Something has is, changed. Is there, yeah. I mean, I want to bring up, since you mentioned when you were born, that this might be one of the few places where you're actually the oldest person yeah. in the room. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> um, But let's get, you You talked a little bit about your family um, and, and that your mm-hmm. dad was, was a police officer. Um, so you grew up in Iowa or, or were born there and your dad actually got fired as a police chief there when you were like in preschool. Yeah. Can you tell us like what happened there? Yeah. And, and it seems like that's something that you've kind of carried with you in terms of a lesson in politics. My earliest memories were like my mom and dad talking about him getting fired. And I as a kid thought like, oh, they're going to like light dad on fire. I didn't like really. I was scared and didn't understand it. This is the craziest story. And a couple of people came up to me over the this week and told me uh, the story as well who knew my dad like they remembered it he was so he came oh. in came into town he set up 911 in the town of Algona uh, he started a mothers against drunk driving chapter the DUI arrest before he got there were like one or two a year and when he got there it was like 40 a year so people were like stop enforcing DUIs <laughs> but he the the controversy was the mayor and a couple council members parked in the fire lane at the county fair and the fire chief called him and said chief what do you want us to do? They're they're saying they're not going to move. They're the mayor and council. And he said, well, if they don't move, you got to tow them. So they towed them. And this would never happen today, I don't think. But mm. the next council meeting, the mayor and city council tried to fire him. And he refused to resign. And it was a battle on the Des Moines Register. I covered it. But a woman came to me uh, this uh, the past Tuesday. And she said her husband was a, a council member. He's passed away since. But uh, that he had voted on the side with my dad. And uh, you know, I, I told my dad that story and it just brought tears to his eyes. And uh, But that is where I learned to do the right thing no matter what and that nobody is above the rules. And I'm dealing with that now on a much larger scale back in Washington, D.C. I mean, when you talk about your family, I think not all your family members are Democrats like yourself. I'm what, the only one. <laughs> what is that? I mean, when they see you on TV having a smackdown with Tucker Carlson uh, live on Fox News or, you know, what is political conversation like back then and then now. Well, I have to go on Fox News if I want my parents to watch me on TV because they're not going to fake news CNN. I was going to ask why you do it. So, yeah, that's a good Um, reason. So I was raised in a Republican household, and my mom and dad, truth be told, on the refrigerator, they have a Trump-Pence magnet. So they're not just Republicans. They're they're Trump supporters. They're they're conflicted, but, you know, they're sticking with uh, the president. So, yeah, we have our own battles over you know these issues i mean there's a lot of respect and you know we, we can we can talk about it but you know i i understand the mindset and i i married a hoosier uh, from southern indiana and her parents are republicans and her family and friends back there are republicans and so 
you know, I always, when I fly into Indianapolis and my father-in-law picks me up hour drive from the airport to where they live, I, I know that I'm going to, you know, hear what the Trump voters think. And actually, it's helpful. I was going to say that. That must it's help very helpful. you. I mean, you also come from a family of law enforcement. You were a prosecutor yeah. before getting into politics. Although my brothers are cops. Yeah. One of them married a cop. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, like, what the conversations and, and your thoughts are, too, then, on a lot of the conversations around police shootings and police yeah. reform that we're hearing. Are those... Uh, sort of tense conversations yeah. around the Thanksgiving table as well? You know, my I think my brother uh, said it best when he said that he, he works for the sheriff's office, Alameda County. And he said when they went to body cams, he said he liked it because it got rid of a lot of the BS complaints. Like he felt like he was an honest cop doing a good job. And sometimes people would put false complaints. And he said, I'm not doing anything wrong, so I don't have anything to worry about. So it's for my safety. And, you know, it also, when people see the cameras on, he said, they don't act the same. They treat me with more respect sometimes. So Alameda County, I think, is a, a good model because they've welcomed the, the body cams. I personally think that every department in America should have a body cam and we should actually tie like the cops funding that we provide to communities to whether or not you have a body cam because it is transparency, it's accountability. And it's officer safety. And it protects both sides, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you were we mentioned you were a prosecutor with Alameda County yeah. um, before you had ran for Congress. Was it at all liberating uh, when you moved over into the to political sphere to be able to sound off politically? Because I think obviously when you're working, you know, in the, in the district attorney's office, as you did, you got to play things a little closer to the vest. We've seen this yeah. with Kamala Harris, yeah. too, right? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you I, what I miss more than anything is like a judge. Because, like, in the courtroom, <laughs> Who makes the call? facts and evidence matter. <laughs> and if someone says something that's just not true or crazy, like, a judge will be like, no, that, you know, there's no foundation for that. That There's no evidence for that. That's hearsay. And, boy, this country could use a judge with this president. And uh, so it's frustrating that, you know, the, ju the judge is the American people. And, and ultimately, they are always proved to be right. But with some of these tweets and some of these, you know, statements, uh, I wish we had a judge. So it's not, so so you're you can say more, but everyone else can too, basically. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So you were on, um, you know, a fairly traditional trajectory, being a prosecutor um, before you ran for Congress. And we mentioned earlier that you took on Pete Stark, who actually got elected before you were even born to yeah, Congress. Seventy-two. Um, what like? Like, like, what was the moment that made yeah. you decide to challenge him in a time when, like, a lot of people thought it was kind of crazy? You know, the California voters in 2010 passed two reforms, independent redistricting and the top two system. And when that happened, I thought, and I, I supported that, but never thought it would affect me. And the Democratic Party opposed it. Both parties opposed those reforms because they benefited without those reforms. And so when Pete Stark got drawn into my district, I just looked around and saw our district, you know, Dublin, Pleasanton, Fremont, Hayward, it was changing. You know, a lot of young families are coming in and just like me, they had a lot of student loan debt. They were working hard, not seeing their paychecks grow. Up, grow. And I thought we could probably use some new energy and ideas to understand this changing economy. And so it wasn't really a race about politics. It was just a race about understanding the future. And I'll admit it was seated. The idea of running for Congress was probably seated as being an intern when I was 20 I worked for Congressman Ellen Tauscher, but when you look at like the nameplates on the walls as an intern, you're a 20-year-old kid, you never think that your name could go there. You think that's like a place for the rich and the connected and like how would I ever 
make it there. Was and that super weird, like showing up from yeah. like, last time you're on the Hill, you're an intern, and now you're a member of Congress? Yeah, I, when I was last on the Hill, I was working at Tortilla Coast like in the evenings, this little Mexican place right around the corner from the Hill. <laughs> they have Mexican food in D.C.? They have Mexican food. It's not as good as the <laughs> Bay Area, but uh, that, that was the last last time I'd been on the Hill. And so to return in that fashion, uh, I mean, yeah, it, it took a couple of years. And Pete Stark had always said, he had said like during debates, you know, Swalwell wouldn't even be able to find the bathroom. He's so inexperienced. And damn it, he was right. Like I could not find like, the bathroom. I was <laughs> the lost. The one thing you admit Pete Stark <laughs> yeah, was right about. he was right. <laughs> but you mentioned new energy and how that was a big part of your campaign. Was there anything when you got to the House that made you think, that maybe parts of incumbency, parts of experience that you appreciated more once you arrived. Oh, yeah. No, you realize that, you know, a lot of these issues, like there's no easy solution. And there's a lot of smart people in Congress on both sides who have given a lot of thought to what the solution is. And to get 218 people to agree on anything is hard. But you also then see like some of your colleagues who would have, I think, been better serving their community if they had retired. Mm-hmm. And so the lesson to me is know when to go out. You know, I learned that from Pete Stark. You know, go be effective, but go out on your own terms. And I tell my wife that every day. Like, the second you think that I, you know, am not being effective or should be doing something else, like, When your 16-year-old son yeah. is running your oppo research, maybe then that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, that, that's a start. That was a reference. low point, yes. Um, yeah, I, yeah I, I feel the same way. Somebody tell me when I'm done with journalism, okay? But, I mean, yeah. but you're getting at something which is sort of at the heart of a lot of the debates happening within the party now, which is sort of new energy versus you know, experience. And I'm curious, like, for example, we mentioned Kevin DeLeon taking on Feinstein. Yeah. You've endorsed Senator Feinstein. Yeah. She is the oldest member of Congress. She's yeah. been there a long time. Like, why? Tell me why that's yeah. different than your race. And, and I look at that race and I and I think, you know, Senator Feinstein is not Pete Stark. Like, the, like I ran against somebody who had, when, I, when we were running, had missed over 4,000 votes and had essentially no longer came home other than a couple times a year, you know, to do town halls. I look at Senator Feinstein. I mean, she still has it and she's effective. And on the issues that matter the most right now, gun violence, like, oh, yeah, she passed the first assault weapons ban and she's still fighting for it. So, you know, I I think it's not fair to just measure someone on their age. It's mm-hmm. are they effective? And so I would hate that if the lesson that was taken away from me running against Pete Stark was it was about age because we never once talked about age. That was the last reason for people to you know, vote against him, I thought. But do you think the Democratic Party or the Democrats within Congress could do a better job of maybe elevating younger members to leadership more quickly? I mean, we talked about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. When she arrives, if she arrives, she'll be at the bo- kind of the bottom of the ladder. Do you think the party could do a better job of elevating, you know, folks with newer energy or momentum behind them up the ranks? Absolutely. And right now at our leadership table, uh, I'm the youngest. Uh, youngest one there. I, I ran for a leadership spot uh, this last election, and I would love to have more young voices. And, and this class that's running what gives me hope. I've seen so many of them across the country. We've got about 60 in the 100-plus competitive seats we have who are under the age of 40. So I think they're going to be able to come in, and they're going to be a block, and they're going to expect to have seats at the leadership table. They're going to be, I think, the next Watergate babies, You know, who came in in 1974 uh, after uh, you know, all of the corruption with the Nixon administration. A lot of them have, are running because they see what's happening with the Trump administration. They think it's wrong and they've answered the call to service. And I, I think they're going to have a lot of power. 
So I want to remind our listeners, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I am Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati, and our guest is Congressman Eric Swalwell. Um, well, you brought up uh, some of the stuff you're doing in terms of, I think, yeah. Russia and and that. You sit on the Intelligence and Judiciary Committee, right. so I got that right. Um, I got a, This is actually a guy question, but I think it's a good one. What's the one like event, meeting, story about Russia meddling, Trump's response that you think voters should know? Because I feel like part of the problem right now for Democrats yeah. is the onslaught of it's everything. A drip. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I believe if all that had happened was that Trump Tower meeting, it would be much easier to understand. But because there's he has such a longstanding personal, political, financial relationship with them, and so did so many others, it's just, it's overwhelming. And we're all getting like a PhD in Russian studies right now, and we didn't want a PhD in Russian studies. And so it's very hard, I think, to just focus on, you know, what matters. To me, you know, I, when I first started this, I thought what mattered the most was that the Russians, you know, had compromised or tried to compromise the president, and they had, they wanted a transactional relationship. Now that I've thought about it, I actually think they don't at all believe they're going to get anything out of this from Donald Trump. They, they know that he couldn't organize a two-car funeral. What they want <laughs> is to attack the idea of America because they know in our country you can be anyone, come from anywhere, and succeed. And so if that's true in America, it can be true anywhere. And they don't want that in their oligarch system. So to them, if you can beat that idea at its origin here in America, then it never comes to Moscow. So they just want the chaos. They helped Donald Trump because that was the best way to get the chaos. But I don't really think they want anything from him. I think they just want us tearing each other apart and that he is just kind of the the useful, you know, tool that they have to do that. Well, a lot of Democrats, though, I think, assume that they that they have to have something on him. When you look at, you know, that that press conference and the meeting with Putin, there's this assumption that why would he be so deferential if not? Yeah. Do, do you, it sounds like you don't necessarily share that. No, I I believe that the way he acted in Helsinki was very strange. And if people were starting to lose patience with the Mueller investigation, when they watched what happened in Helsinki, they were like, oh, keep keep going with that investigation because something here is strange. Do you get that from Republicans at all? So not my colleagues. In my colleagues, I put them in two camps, Republican colleagues. They're afraid to say anything because they know that when you speak up, he tweets at you. And when he tweets at you, he wins. Like Mark Sanford, right? South Carolina, he spoke up not even that much. Spoke right. up. Trump tweeted at him. He lost his the Appalachian Trail didn't kill him, but you know they, they forgave him for that. <laughs> but they didn't forgive him for speaking out against Trump. And then the other camp, there's a lot of them in this camp. They just see somebody who's willing to do what they've always wanted to do: gut health care, tax cuts, deregulation. So I don't hear a lot of that. But a, a close friend of mine did tell me the other day, a Republican. He said. Watching that press conference was the first time that he thought just what you said. Do the Russians have something on this guy? I don't know what they could have. I think, you know, his financial dealings is, are what we should be looking at the most. Hopefully Bob Mueller's doing that. If Democrats get control of Congress and we don't have answers yet from Bob Mueller, 
I think we owe it to the country to understand those relationships. Well, speaking about the race for Congress, I think looking at Russia as a political issue, I think you hit it on the head. You had a tweet on Monday that said, it's pretty clear real Donald Trump colluded with Russia, but what really matters is who he didn't collude with. He didn't collude with anyone to increase your pay, bring down your health care costs, or let you dream bigger for your kids. I mean, how does that, when you're out talking to folks, whether it's in California or maybe more importantly when you're out in Iowa talking to folks in swing districts, how do you balance the need to not at the fact that there is this yeah. investigation that goes on, but still there is a limited amount of oxygen and a limited yeah. amount of time. And that doesn't seem to be what yeah. people are. Exactly. Like, and voters you still have to get most. to these yeah. other things. Yeah. To voters, I think it's still about me, my family. Am I doing better or dreaming bigger? And if Donald Trump made all these promises on paychecks that will grow, healthcare costs that will come down, cleaning up Washington, and that didn't happen. I think that's how he ultimately loses. I don't think in 2020 it's going to be the tweets, the chaos that's a reality show at the Oval Office, or even you know the family dealings to help the business. I think it's just that he promised a lot, delivered a little. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. It's it's the Ronald Reagan 1984. You know, are you better off? And if you're not better off, you know, you're going to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But that pivot is hard. I mean, you're going you making appearances on nightly TV and having to talk about the Russian investigation and get into yeah. kind of the minutia of, of what's going on, the step-by-step, but still, you know, having to make that pivot, I think that's that's kind of the challenge. It is. And it, and I like to just say that the Russian investigation to me is, is about the future. It's about, do we have free and fair elections in the future? Mueller will figure out the ties between Trump, the family, the campaign, but our democracy has to be able to tell the voters on election night that the election was pure and it belonged to us. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we can weather too many more elections where people wonder if outside adversaries are having their voices heard above ours. And that's what I think is most important. All right. Well, we just have a moment left, but we usually like to end on something a little fun. So we know you're expecting yeah. child number two and yeah. also that you have a hashtag, Swalwelling. Yes. T- explain to people what that is. So I promised the voters I would be present when I got elected. I'd come home. We'd do town halls. I'd work in their shoes. And so I wanted to show them visually the sacrifice of coming home every weekend from Washington, D.C. and the commitment to them. And so I I thought it'd be weird to take a selfie, like getting on the plane. And TSA would probably like not let me (laughs) on the plane. So I took a picture of my shoe stepping across the threshold and, and now that's a thing at least it's not getting well, dragged off the right yeah and so, exactly well, we gotta... and so that that's coming home and yes uh my wife and i uh expecting right around election day so for us it's a midterm and a full term well congrats thank you uh thank you so much for being on the program of course Congressman. thanks for having me on guys that is going to do it for this uh, edition of political breakdown a production of kqed public radio and you can check us out on apple Podcasts. subscribe rate us do all of that stuff. Our engineer, Sia Muller, Nina Thorson directed the show this week. Ethan Lindsay is our managing editor. And Holly Kernan is our VP of News. I'm Marisa Lagos. Find me at M. Lagos. And you can find me, Guy Marzarati, at Guy Marzarati on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.